talk first, though. We are going to meld together Budget Day as well as our healthcare system. Uh, there's a lot to unpack when it comes to having a doctor, needing a doctor, waiting for your healthcare services to kick in. We know a lot of surgeries have been postponed, coming back online, hopefully, with uh, with the good news with COVID-19 of late, and in that our hospitalizations are are easing a bit. One of my go-tos, certainly one of the best follows on social media, is our global news medical ep- expert, Dr. Berinder Narang. He joins me on the line to uh, unpack this and a bunch more. I said, will you come on with me to talk a whole bunch? And you said, sure, I will. No problem at all, doctor, and I appreciate you for that. Thanks for doing this. No problem, Jody. I hope you're having a wonderful family day so far. I am. So far, so good. It's something about the sunlight that makes us all feel just a little bit better. You and I talk a lot about um, family physicians and having a GP. That's kind of in the mix of our conversation today. I do want people to, I want to alert people to your Twitter account because you do uh, lay things out in, in a way that's so informative. But before we dive into that subject, can you give me just a brief perspective from your learned position of what should be in the BC budget with regard to supporting our healthcare system here in BC? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot to unpack, but when we look at it, primary care has been chronically underfunded in this province, and the majority of uh, primary care reform initiatives that have uh, been presented to British Columbians over the last few years have been around supporting networks of providers that are interdisciplinary, um, including physicians, nurse practitioners, um, registered nurses, and other allied health providers. And there's absolutely a role for that. But what has been missing from all of that for years now is direct investment into family physicians as individuals and their practices um, on an infrastructure level. And it's getting worse, not better, despite all the initiatives over the last few years. I don't know how many times you must be asked in a day of, can you help me find myself a GP? I'm just me. And I, I, if I had a dollar for every time somebody had said, do you know a doctor who's taking patients? Because people are literally uh, at a loss. I mean, it's, it's on their outgoing messages when you call most um, practices that, that, no, we're not accepting new patients. Therefore, people lean hard into walk-in clinics or uh, the like. What can we do? If we're searching some people rather frantically for a GP, are there avenues to take to find one? Yeah, there are definitely avenues, but you, you've already highlighted some of it. Is that people are ca- at capacity, um, people are leaving the profession, um, people are being forced to work longer than they physically, mentally um, should be. Um, well into their retirement years because they can't find someone to replace it. So uh, replace them, take over their practice. And so if, if we notice all these things happening, there's something broken in the system that is preventing us from being able to recruit people externally, like bringing people into BC, but also internally. Like I'm, I supervise uh, family medicine residents and I, I try to help with their training. And even my last two residents, um, they're going into both emergency medicine and palliative care because uh, the system of family practice in British Columbia is not 
set up to for them to thrive in the type of field that they envisioned going into medical school. But saying that, there are systems in place. They're not perfect, um, but every region has something that's called uh, the divisions of family practice. And what is the divisions of family practice? They're independent nonprofit societies that are funded through the government of BC and doctor uh, doctors of BC. And they work in partnership with health authorities, um, other uh, community organizations and ministry initiative, initiatives. And one of um, the roles of the uh, divisions of family practice is to help match patients, connect patients um, who are looking for family physicians with family physicians who we're trying to recruit into the area. And so they, you know, I work in Burnaby. I'm the chair of the board for the Burnaby Division, the family practice. And we have um, staff who are patient attachment coordinators and their job is to connect patients with family physicians. But what you'll see is if you look into it deeper is many of the jurisdictions just don't have enough. Right. That's the big piece of this puzzle. We're with mm. Dr. Burinder Narang. He is Global mm. News Medical Expert. And Dr. Narang, when it comes to where dollars are needed most, like when you are looking at how to give the system the boost it needs or the arm arm the province, uh, the healthcare governing body with something that will will attract those experts, those those physicians who can work in an environment that is really um, an affordability nightmare for so many in so many walks of life. And, and it, what people maybe don't understand is the costs associated with opening your own practice. No, absolutely. And I think that that's something that has been often um, looked over that many, the way that the system is set up right now with majority of physicians are forced to work in a system um, that has basically governed the last 50 years of family practice in Canada. It's called a fee for service model, which means for every service, every visit, you're paid a set amount. Now, mm. this type of, as patients complexities have um, grown, especially um, um, in the last few years, um, we worry about the quality of care that could be provided under this model. Um, I'm sure you have um, friends, listeners, and, um, you know, family members that have had to attend a walk-in clinic, and there's a big sign that says, one problem per visit. And right. that is purely a function of the fee-for-service model, because whether you spend um, seven minutes with a patient or you spend 20 minutes with a patient, you will be remunerated the same, but your overhead costs will remain fixed. So to remain sustainable, uh, you need to see more volume, otherwise you're not earning anything. And in um, those infrastructure costs continue to go up. Um, overhead costs in downtown Vancouver, some clinics require you to spend, uh, give 40% of your income um, to cover those overhead costs. Whereas um, there is a multi um, kind of tier system being created where if you give up that autonomy of wanting to work in your own family practice and go work for one of the these new urgent care centers or health authority clinics or other models working in the hospital, you'll you can earn up to 30 to 40% more as a family physician. So you literally will be losing money to try and provide the medicine that you're trained to do. 
Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett this week. Dr. Burinder Narang, global news medical expert, is with us. And just before the break, doctor, you were throwing down uh, some pretty amazing facts about how our healthcare system works here in British Columbia with regard to general practitioners, to our our everyday go-to physicians who hang a shingle or a part of a practice, and, and it comes with all kinds of costs related there, and the attraction to perhaps move into an urgent care center or work into hospitals because you can make significantly more working in those environments. Why is it that there this hasn't been, uh, why the physician's personal practice or individual practices hasn't evolved over 50 years? I'm not sure. I think that there's been a, a lot of pilot programs looking at different types of payment reform uh, models, um, and they haven't seen the light of day. Um, there is evidence that BC has been one of the slowest provinces to adapt to new payment reform models, and we're seeing it in our in our graduates. I mean, like I, I mentioned, if just a few anecdotes from my own personal life, but we're seeing it across the country um, that family medicine residents won't go into um, this traditional type of bricks and mortar practice um, because it's just not viable um, there. It's, and it, you know, it ties into the cost of living and everything else we're seeing in Vancouver. It affects For everyone. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, many people leave prom, med school and training residency with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt as well. So you're coming into an environment where you have massive debt you need to pay off and, and you're like, well, I, I, I need to be practical about what my endeavors are. I know family practice residents that love family practice. They've moved over to Alberta because they can build 20% more. Right. And and we see that in teachers as well. It's like our frontline workers on so many fronts, but healthcare here in particular, if there's one thing we've learned over these last two years is how vital it is that we uh, be forward thinking with how our healthcare system needs to be vibrant and robust prior to epic uh, impacts such as this COVID-19 pandemic has exposed. What what can be done, do you think, or what what's needed in terms, is there a viable way of just, is it increasing that single, you know, appointment amount of money to, to level out the field? Is it, is it, I don't even know what the, I don't know what the answer is here. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm struggling to even find the question. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. And it, it, it's not, um, it is complex, and I think you, you've hit the nail on the head there that there is no easy solution. And I think um, just throwing more money at this uh, system that um, doesn't serve patients' needs well is, is not the right way to approach it. The, but we need to look at engaging with physicians to see what are the styles of practice that would work for them, but in the process, making sure that their time is valued. And it's valued at an appropriate amount. If we're looking at primary care reform, looking outside of the family doctor profession to help support it with nurse practitioners. Um, there was even articles this weekend about the roles of physician assistants. Absolutely, there's a role for them. But you cannot do that unless you, you're you valuing the family physician time because what happens is that all these other um, scopes of practice have their own inherent limitations um, and um, costs associated with it. So if you're taking off um, you know, potentially uh, more straightforward cases and you're leaving family physicians with the more complexities um, mm. and with more complex cases, there's more medical liability with it. There's more, um, you know, um, potential um, for needing to do more chronic pain cases, mental health patient, uh, cases, things that take more time. If you want that to be done effectively, we need to look 
change the way that we look at family physicians, that they are specialists in this area and that they be, need to be paid in that way. Um, and there will be physicians that will be attracted to that. But there will also be physicians that say, you know what, I want to look at all types of um, my patients' needs, whether it's, uh, you know, more the more complex and more simple. I want to be able to do it all. But again, I need to be paid for my time to do that. So there are people that where the fee-for-service model will work well for them and they will want to stay in that. But there are also people that absolutely will not go into family medicine. And I'm one of them. If I was forced to work in a fee-for-service model, I would not be a family doctor right now. Really? Wow, that is quite the statement. Yeah. It's interesting too. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, I could talk to you for another half an hour about this easily. Mm-hmm. It, as as people who are looking toward uh, needing supports of their family physician, we need to go in knowing what we need to come out with. You know, you, the laundry list of things and wanting to talk to your doctor for 30, 40 minutes. I mean, those days are gone in the current model. And I think there's, when I when I reach out to you and you and I are friends, we, we talk about things, we sidebar about things. It's being a good patient is just as important as being a good physician. That's what I see in, in reading. And as I said, following you on social media, such a great resource, doctor. Thank you so much for taking time on family day to, to help us unpack this. And maybe we can talk a little later on in the week once we know what the budget looks like. Absolutely. Have a great day and week. Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett this week. Thanks for uh, being along with us here on Family Day. Hope it finds you well. Beautiful sunny days. Uh, maybe getting out for a drive. A little bit chilly out there. You heard Mark Madriga's forecast. It's <laughs> it's going to plunge over the next few days. It's sort of that uh, that winter meets spring moment here in BC, where we're lulled in that false sense of uh, forsythia and crocuses. We'll take it though here in BC. Things open up in a way at this time of year when it comes to real estate around the Lower Mainland. And we wanted to get into what we might expect as we head into the busy season for home sales. What does the market look like? Are you considering putting your home up for sale? Are you in the market to buy something before interest rates go up as it is predicted they will? Well, wanted to connect with somebody who, if you're a longtime CKNW listener, you probably know the name Sarah Daniels. She was your eye in the sky. She was also on Global News Morning for years and years, but has for years now been an expert when it comes to real estate. She's an agent with McDonald Realty in Surrey, good friend of the program. Uh, Sarah, thanks for doing this. Welcome. Thank you for having me, my dear. I'm so excited to hear your take on things. You're passionate about your work. You're a great follow on social media to keep up to date on what is happening in and around the Lower Mainland. You are a specialist for South Surrey, White Rock in particular, but you keep your eye on markets across the Lower Mainland. What are you seeing right now in terms of how the markets uh, are or have shifted recently with sort of some of the measures coming off our uh, uh, COVID-19 pandemic experience? Yeah, That's really been the thing is everybody knows for the last year and a half, the market in, in uh, technical terms could be called bonkers. That's my technical <laughs> term for it. Um, and the reason I say that is because of, and I, you know, a lot of it is um, I'm certain about COVID and, and people's fears about what, what their income is going to look like, what's going on. There has been a lack of inventory and lack of inventory. is basically people just don't want to move. But that doesn't stop people from wanting to purchase. So there's what what actually happens in that kind of market is people purchase before they sell, which of course, if their house isn't up for sale, you know that's kind of the 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 program that everybody else is following too. So we've had historically low inventory and a lot of people looking to buy, and that has really pushed the market up. At first, it started with detached homes. It then went on to townhomes, and now we're seeing just bananas pricing on condos. For instance. Um, 
a condo that was listed down here in South Surrey in December of 2020 and sold at the time for $460,000, was listed 13 months later and sold for $705,000. So that's a $245,000 difference. That's crazy. And the reason that's happened is because people that were, you know, prior to that looking at the uh, townhouse market that would have been priced similarly, they've been pushed out of the townhouses. So it's trickled down to condos. However, last couple of weeks, we are starting to see a lot more inventory coming on the market. And, you know, it would seem that that might be related to we're coming up to the two year anniversary of COVID. You know, things are starting to ease. Omicron has kind of blown through the province, blown through the world. It doesn't seem to have had uh, as it, it doesn't seem to have had as such as serious effect as uh, Delta on a case by case basis. But it's been much more virulent. Obviously, we know and this is not a COVID discussion. This is a real estate discussion. But I think that also we're starting to see. Um, the, the change in, in uh, on, on rules and regulations and regarding COVID, um, yeah. you know, people's freedoms coming back a little bit more in the sense of being able to travel a little bit more, um, you know, talks about removing masks. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm going to be terribly comfortable with that for the next little while, but these are the, the ways things are going. And because of that, people are starting to think about, oh, well, look at how hot the market is. Maybe I'm going to cash out and move. Yeah. And, you know, when everybody thinks about it at the same time, then you end up with uh, then you end up with a, a lot more inventory on the market, and that can help balance things. Well, I like your technical terms, both bonkers and bananas. That's what real yeah. estate is like in the Lower Mainland right now. And when you touch on the COVID restrictions, I mean, it must have been a very stressful couple of years being a realtor. Your whole your whole mo is to have people come and go, uh, come and visit your house, look around. People, yeah. I know perhaps many people that I know would not have perhaps felt comfortable doing that in 2020, maybe even in 2021. But now in 2022, with so many of the measures moving and vaccination rates being as high as they are, all of a sudden now being a looky-loo back in real estate, um, it feels more inviting. I don't even know what the right yeah. word is. I used to yeah. love to walk through places in my neighborhood just to see what's on the market and what's it selling for. And exactly. if I know anybody, you know, because people are very, I've just as we're sitting here talking, my producer, Ben Dooley and our technical producer, Tim French, are having a conference, conference call in our Google chat about, you know, my friend, his girlfriend just bought a condo in Richmond. I'm so jealous. I'm, I'm trying to buy a condo right now and options are limited. It's like people are all of a sudden really, you know, ravenous to find out what can we get how much will it cost because those interest rates the the bank of canada talking about raising rates to or you know tackle inflation that plays into it right they're already ticking up um i mean for instance uh scotia uh, scotia mortgage uh, rates right now scotia bank mortgage rates uh the best the the lowest potential rate you can get for a five-year fix is three percent we haven't seen anything start with a three in quite a while. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, and I know that's a bit of a shock for people, but you've got to remember, like when I bought my first place, interest rates were in the double digits. So um, I remember when they dropped below 10, 10% and I, you know, was doing my happy dance. So these still are historically low rates. Yeah. And uh, generally when you're pre-approved for a mortgage, you get to lock in that rate for at least a couple of months. So there is that kind of pressure to grab something quickly. The other thing that's going on with these, uh, with, with people purchasing and a lot of people that are sort of watching from the sidelines and they see, you know, a condo list at, uh, you know, whatever price and then it sells, they just presume it went for that price or under. But what is happening, of course, because of the lack of inventory, it has been a strategy to underlist the price of the property. So, yeah. you know, or put it slightly below market, yeah. you attract yeah. lots of buyers, you have a set amount of, and set showings. 
So you have showing, say, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday at certain times, people book, and then an offer date for the Monday or Tuesday. So generally when you're going in to purchase for something like that, uh, you're, you're writing an unconditional offer, no subjects. Mm. So there's no financing subject. There's no uh, subject of reviewing strata documents if you're looking at a condo. And that really does put pressure on a lot of people. No uh, I have to say, I, ha- I, I, did a, I had a condo that listed uh, the, a couple of weeks ago that I listed for 448 Older building, you know, um, like a building that six, eight months ago wouldn't have got a lot of attraction, but we ended up with 11 offers, and it sold for about $98,000 than it had just six, seven months prior. Wow, so like, holy. Yes. So, and Those the, are big and, numbers. The thing is that the offer that we accepted was not the highest offer. In fact, there was an offer that was considerably higher, but the offer that was written had a very low deposit, and it also had nine days of subjects, including a bank mm. appraisal. And those, you know, it's kind of like bird in the hand. Um, so that I know, and I know that's super frustrating for buyers because trust me, just because I'm a listing agent on one side, I have to work with buyers on the other too. For sure. You can get offers accepted with subjects, but you really have to work with the, the listing realtor, you know, make sure that they understand that, you know, why the subjects are in place how long you've known the client, you really have to build those relationships. You know, just sending in, a, just sending in an offer and, and not discussing anything with the listing realtor if you're working for buyers is not the way to do good business. It's just okay, let's you have pause. to have those relationships. Jody Vanson for Jill this week, along with my good friend Sarah Daniels, an agent with McDonald Realty in Surrey. And Sarah, prior to the break, we were just touching on something that I think is so key when Putting in an offer when trying to get into a busy, busy, busy real estate landscape, like you said, uh, low inventory, a lot of people looking to make the move, perhaps, you know, be one of those 11 bidders on that condo that's come on the yeah. market. Knowing knowing your agent is in there pleading your case or explaining your situation to the selling agent is so key. What on the other other side of that is your piece of advice as well? Give us some 101 to real estate, buying or selling. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you think need not be made? Well, first of all, the first thing you should always do is make sure that you have spoken to your mortgage broker and uh, that you've got all those ducks in a row. I mean, there's just absolutely no point in going out, even looking in the first place until those things are taken care of. Second of all, you want to make sure that you have, uh, like, first of all, expectations within within range. So, you know, the, this is a thing that I do with my clients all the time. You know, set them up on a, on a system called Collab, which is what we use with the um, the realtors in the lower mainland. And that allows them to see all the different listings as they're coming up. But I also say to them, when you see it disappear, which generally means it's sold, and you're interested in that particular property, ask me why it's sold and how much it's sold for, like, and what the circumstances were. Some properties are still being listed, and they're just taking offers as they come. Others are being held back for offers. So it's important to know exactly what the the circumstances were. The other thing is, um, you know, making sure also that you are going out and actively looking at properties, even if they may not be a property that is particularly interesting to you. You sometimes are going to be surprised. You think, oh, this, the pictures of this house look so great, and it only sold for X amount. Well, pictures only tell a part of the story. And, of course, you know, they're taken by professional photographers. You know, sometimes you can see pictures of, of a place that looks like it's completely renovated and it looks lovely. But when you get into the home, you can see that the quality of the workmanship is just not there. Things mm. have been done poorly. And that's going to affect the purchase price. And, you know, as me representing buyers, I'm going to be walking through with the clients and pointing out the things that are going to be problematic. Uh, you know, again, 
when you're going out to purchase, you should have in mind the idea that you are going to be buying something that you are going to be able to live in or hold on to for at least five years. That's typically a market cycle. So you don't want to be, you know, if, if, if you, all you can afford is a one bedroom and you know that you're not going to be able to live in that one bedroom probably realistically past a couple of years, make sure that you're purchasing that one bedroom in a building that you can rent that unit out at, right? Because you don't want, you don't want to be selling two years later. There's a cost that is, you know, a part of of purchasing, which is property transfer tax. That's 1% on the first 100,000 and 2% on the balance. So on a million dollar purchase, you're paying 18,000 in property transfer tax. And then when you sell, of course, you're paying commission. So you have to take all those factors into consideration, making sure uh, that you are, you know, you're planning well. On the sell side, first thing I say to people is, you know, it's not just as simple, even in a hot market like this that is still leaning towards being like a very strong seller's market, you can't just slap a sign up front and think that that's it. You know, have the professional cleaners in there. Do the little odd jobs that you haven't uh, been done. I mean, I I had a client who's like, we've got a property listed right now. Broken, uh, there was a a crack in the toilet bowl top, like the, on the, the, on the little thing that goes on the back of the tank. And we got it replaced because it was quite glaring. I mean, these are, you know, if you're, if you're expecting top dollar, you've got to present the property as, as top dollar. And that means, it's got to be clean. I mean, you can't you can't put, have people walking through the house and the kitchen's got stuff in the in the sink. You, all those kind of things have to be taken care of. Is it a pain? Of course it is, but it's worth the work. Um, always make sure that your realtor is having professional uh, photos done. I always do floor plans for all my clients, be it a condo or a mansion, uh, because when when clients are going out and looking at five or six different listings, you know, sometimes it's hard to remember was where, how big was that closet? Right. Or was there a hall? Was there a hall closet? Do you think we could, our furniture would fit, right? So you're, you've got those floor plans. They can take them home and see if that property, you know, whether their couch is going to fit in the living room. These are the important things that you want to get done. And again, when you're selling, you should also be talking to your mortgage broker, regardless if you're planning to go down in size or up in size. A lot of people that have been in their home for seven to 10 years and have just been renewing their mortgages don't realize how strict mortgage lending has become. And because interest rates are so historically low, there's not a lot of motivation for the banks to lend to you for a house, right? I mean, there's not a lot of money in it for them. So they're going to be super strict. And they're trying to stay ahead of the government guidelines because, you know, you're, uh, when you're approved for a mortgage now, there's the rate that you're paying, but there's also the rate that you have to be approved of, which is substantially higher. And that is because they, the government wants to make sure and the banks want to make sure that if, in, in fact, there's a hike in interest rates, like we're going to be seeing most likely over the next year or so, that you're still going to be able to afford the property. So what, what you were doing 10 years ago and how you got approved is different from now. So you might be thinking, okay, well, I'm going to get a, just a slightly bigger mortgage because we're going to bump up and, and you know, it should be fine. I'm making good money. Well, you still have to talk to your lender. I mean, you still yeah. got to talk to your mortgage broker because, um, and, and get those ducks in a row. Do that before you list the property. You don't want to sell your house and then find out what you wanted to purchase is out of reach. That's going oh to my, be a problem. That's... Even if you're going down in price. Even if yeah, even down. if you're going down. And that's the big piece of this puzzle. And you've taught me so much over the years. 
but looking for the trusted realtor, looking for that mortgage broker who's going to take the time to get to know you, your situation, give you an assessment on what is realistic for you are all keys to this. Sarah, you're an exceptional uh, friend, realtor, and follow on social media. It's Sarah Daniels on Twitter. Uh, if you've just tuned in and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I want to hear the, this segment in its entirety, we'll make sure it's on the podcast as well as I'll put it out on my Twitter at Jody Vance. So give us a follow there. Sarah, as always, thank you for this. Great to talk to you, sweetie. Jody Vance in for Jill this week. Thanks for being along with us and happy family day to you. What a beautiful day in the lower mainland. Hope you're uh, safely making your way around, uh, enjoying the outdoors, perhaps enjoying the uh, lifting of measures here in British Columbia to a large degree, uh, a relief for so many. And for others, it can be really stressful. And it has certainly been a stressful few weeks uh, for those across the country who have really felt the disagreement with those who would occupy Ottawa or block border crossings and what have you, a portion of society. You heard in Safiya Parani's news there how some with those quote-unquote freedom rally mentalities uh, found Minister Mike Farnworth's home and uh, caused a problem there. We're hearing more and more like this, um, sparked by unrest and tensions on social media, online tensions certainly escalating over the last month or so, even more so than we've seen over the last two years, was, which was already uh, at sort of a feverish peak uh, in the divisiveness sense. We wanted to talk through how best to manage when perhaps you get caught up in that. Um, Jesse Miller is a social media educator and uh, lead at Mediated Reality, a great follow on social media, by the way, if you want to avoid disinformation and and understand how to be a good digital citizen. You've likely heard Jesse speak here on CKNW before, good friend of the program, and, and showing up here again on Family Day. It seems I always call you <laughs> on a vacation day, Jesse, and you always say yes. So thank you first and foremost for doing this. Oh, thank you for having me, Jody. So what have we learned over the last month or so with regard to the trucker convoy and how social media has very much been used um, to bolster that as well as cause ever more divisiveness, uh, not just in Canada, but it has spread around the globe with this particular movement? Yeah, well, prior prior to the pandemic, we had a number of small factions on social media in Canada that had had far right or alternative right views. We saw the creation of Facebook groups like the Maverick Party in Alberta. We saw Western separatism parties kind of pop up. And most of the time, it was just general uh, anger towards the current government. And then you saw some themes around things like uh, Trudeau's, you know, never going to take my guns. And, and, And so, Within all of that, the only harmonization we really did see was during uh, maybe maybe the Humboldt bus crash. We saw a lot of positive Canadiana kind of come together in that space. But even then, if you look at some of the social media divisiveness, we started to see the evolution of uh, how people approach talking about the pandemic, the sourcing of it, where our rights or freedoms or perceptions of how our rights or freedoms are going to be marginalized. And then a lot of conspiracy started to kick in. And so those conspiracy pieces, whether it be attached to 5G or George Soros or um, anything to do with Bill Gates being firmly embedded in the aspect of the, of the, of the pandemic, a lot of that rooted in the successes that uh, the American government saw in 2016 election 
And the idea that you can weaponize social media with misinformation to have a populace very much believe something that might have no truth whatsoever. So when we talk about that disinformation piece, some things are planted simply to rile people up and then it goes viral and and the message gets lost. And, you know, certainly there were people who were feeling that vaccine mandates were unfair in some way here in Canada and wanted to have their voice heard by the government, regardless of the fact that vaccine um, issues or measures are provincial government, but some wanted to be heard at Parliament Hill. And then it became something so much more controversial, so much noise, so much, um, well, a backbone of, of, of white supremacy and some hate in there and some symbols that many might have thought Canadians would be immune to. And very few of us expected to watch the likes of Tucker Carlson talking about what's happening up in Canada. How did things blow up the way they did in this particular situation, in your opinion? Well, this one's interesting because obviously we had our our kind of uh, uh, big tent circus with this event. But the thing is, is that there were a number of stakeholders who were very active throughout uh, 2018-2019 in the way that you take on issues in Canada. So whether it be oil and gas in Alberta and the trucker convoys that would go to Ottawa that way prior to the pandemic, grabbing on the pandemic uh, vitriol and kind of pivoting it that way with aspects of one world government uh, conspiracies. But you have to remember disinformation is for profit. You can make a lot of money by planting information on social media and getting people to buy in. And so it's not just the fringe aspect of, of conspiracy. It's literally creating enough information that people do buy in and then it's amplified in their silos. And so what we have experienced here in Canada is very similar to what happened in the United States over the past five years but this aspect of the Freedom Convoy becoming this small group of truckers who are heading you know, from west to east and then collecting along the way white supremacists, uh, Nazis, individuals who are flying Confederate flags, the Canada First flags. I mean, I, I don't like the rhetoric that, well, this wasn't the event. If I'm at an event and somebody is you know, waving a swastika around and I'm not standing up against it, guess what? I'm at a Nazi rally. Like, that's just the way it is. <laughs> so, yeah. so in that it may be the idea that you know this big tent event kind of kind of became a party of individuals who kind of did not want to in any way shape or form adhere to the mandates or the provincial health orders or whatever it be but we have over amplified a very small group of people in Canada and it's unfortunate that it has embarrassed us the way it has on an international scale that's true i feel that in a way that i'm actually writing about that for the orca.ca in in just how much the canadian flag has the reputation of that flag for travelers has just changed um and and that in my generation was what you would put on your backpack to be identified as a good human and and somebody who is kind and and maybe too apologetic uh you know we're famous for saying sorry that was not the case over the last few weeks and and watching as you said you know i had a professor kimberly brownlee on um an ethics professor from ubc political scientist from there and she was talking about how some people are there to be heard and and peacefully protest and others who show up with symbols of hate if you don't want to be associated with those symbols of hate you must remove yourself from that um, and and really make a show of not being a part of that. You can't stay at the party 
and just say that's that's not what I'm I'm here for. But there are also people who just showed up because they are sort of career protesters. That is the community piece. And and certainly this weekend, Jesse, and watching the the slow walk of law enforcement in uh, dispersing those people who had been entrenched in Ottawa, um, watching just how many of those people live streamed every second of it. How much damage is done? with the the filming of those instances and perhaps having them taken out of context? Well, I think it's actually important that we actually do have those live streams. I mean, if we saw the arrest of Pat King on his live stream and we heard the, the litany of charges that were being read out by the uh, Ottawa police, um, there are individuals whose job it is right now is to collect all that evidence because that's what right. it is. And yeah. so, you know, when you have these individuals standing in front of court and saying, no, I wasn't trying to get people to come to Ottawa. Well, you have hours and hours and hours of footage showing the contrary. So I'm, I'm somewhat glad that that exists. But one of the things we have to keep in mind here is that with, with an audience on social media, um, you are obviously by, bypassing mainstream media. And, that, and there's a piece of that that I think is important to recognize is that when you have a journalist doing a live hit from the event as it's occurring, you have to be able to do your job in a safe manner. And we saw a number of journalists who were not able to do that with the, with the vitriol that was thrown towards media. But I still don't. I, I mean, this is what I research. I research media. I still don't understand what the end goal for the arguments against media in this space were. Who are you subscribing to? Are you subscribing to Druthers? Are you subscribing to aspects of, of epoch times? And you believe that to be true? I mean, it's propaganda on the other side. So you can't argue that doing your own research is the the opposite of CBC or CTV or global, and that that's legitimate because at the end of the day, you are as equally prone to falling for whatever these publications want to put out there. So in that, as a piece of social media, I mean, yes, we can sit there and say people have the power, but the reality of it is every blogger is trying to find something from, from another writer and, and kind of twist it as their own. But we saw some amazing journalists stand out with good information sharing and, and, and active want to find that happy balance that's desperately needed in this conversation. And my first example is Justin Ling. Justin yeah. Ling was more than active, more than fair, and made sure that not only did whatever he was sharing via Twitter have context, but also historical context. And so there's no way I could sit there and say anything that I, I read from Ling didn't match up because the re- he has the receipts. Whereas the majority of these rants and raves on this live stream don't. Jody Vance in for Jill this week. And I'm continuing our chat with uh, Jesse Miller, social media educator at Mediated Reality. A great follow on Twitter, by the way, at Mediated Reality. If you want to double check the disinformation highway. And Jesse, one of the things you were mentioning prior to the break is how the... The disinformation amplification on social media is something that we've watched grown over the last number of years south of the border, and it's certainly echoing here in Canada. We can no longer pretend that we're immune to that sort of my way or the highway divisiveness and how it creeps into our politics in a way that is very unhealthy, it seems, like to not quash what you know to be untrue as a leader um, how do we how do we push back on that as individuals? How do we address that, or can we? Is social media just that free for all that we have to just ignore it or mute it or block it or what have you? What's your advice on that? Uh, I think as constituents, we have a responsibility to hold our elected or, or vying for elected leaders uh, accountable in that space. And, and to be fair, I've done that in, in across the board, no matter the spectrum. Uh, I've seen elected members of parliament who not only follow 
toxic, toxic content on social media. And, you know, you share it, you openly challenge them and you go back a day later and they've deleted it. Nobody's really kind of holding them to account that moment. Um, but at the same time, when we also see uh, elected officials, no matter no matter the, the level, uh, repopulating aspects of, of misinformation where they where they state these things. And so we even saw this in the House yesterday, where uh, a member of Parliament uh, was talking about aspects of conspiracy that were all very much rooted in QAnon rhetoric and. It's unfortunate that's gotten to this point. We we didn't see any success that the United States had um, going down this path, and I don't know why Canadians would um, be okay with aspects of, of this happening. But the, the hard part here is that in addressing it, we, we are still very polite. We don't want to get in a fight with somebody. We don't want to argue about it. We don't necessarily have the wherewithal to go to a family dinner and sit down, especially with COVID in the reality of the mix. So we have a lot of family members who are unfortunately prone to radicalization in this space because they're at home and they're sitting on the internet. So with only two minutes to have this conversation, I wish I had more time with you. How does one navigate that when you feel the ire starting to come up within you, when that my way or the highway where you know you've double-checked your facts, but somebody is coming at you with that QAnon sort of rhetoric, how best to manage that, particularly when it comes to social media exchanges? Yeah, if it's on if it's on social media, don't don't engage. There's no point in, in fighting. You've got a person whose ideology and logic is so locked in that they're willing to make fake Twitter accounts and yell at you and call you names. We've all got better things to do with our time. And uh, at the end of the day, if they're targeting you on a chronic basis, then report and 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 flag them for harassment. But face to face, I mean, I think that's significantly different, and that's where public discourse, unfortunately, doesn't get the benefit of of having sit downs and conversations the way we used to, probably because of aspects of social distancing. But at the same time, we also are a very toxic toxic point in our in our communities and our culture. We're not divided. We're just very short when it comes to arguing about ridiculousness that can be uh, debunked very quickly. Oh, that's such a good point. You know, we just got to take a beat. We've all, all of us have a shorter fuse in 2022 than perhaps we had in 2019. As always, Jesse, such a pleasure to be able to talk things through with you. I feel better about those live streaming videos now, knowing that it is literally somebody's job in law enforcement to collect all of that and make sure that the people who created an unsafe environment are held to account while those who wanted to peacefully protest had an opportunity to have their voices heard. Thank you, as always, for your uh, mediated response. You uh, definitely deliver on what uh, you represent. Thank you, Jody. Jody Vance in for Jill this week and looking forward to having some fun for the next 30 minutes or so uh, because we get to talk movies. 94th Academy Awards are March 27th. Do you watch the Oscars? Do you get into it? We do in our family. We always have breakfast for dinner. You wear your jammies. You watch the Oscars. And a number of years back, we started really dedicating ourselves to watching all of the Best Picture nominees. It certainly makes viewing that much more fun. So I wanted to maybe spark that in you. If you haven't taken on that challenge of watching as many of the Best Picture nominees that you can, uh, this is such a great piece of making Oscar night ever more special. Uh, 
and now more than ever before, those movies are available at our fingertips, often for no extra cost if you have streaming services. So let's talk about the list and dive in with someone who I consider a very good friend. We were co-hosts on Breakfast Television for years and years. He's one of the best movie critics going. Uh, he throws the hammers down. He is Thor Dykow joining me on the line. Hey, Thor. What an intro. Thank you so much, Jody. Great to be with you again. I love talking movies with you because no word of a lie, when you drop the hammers, 99.999% of the time, I am fully agreeing with you. Uh, even when there are movies that I have not yet seen and you recommend them to me and I go, I'm like, Thor is a genius. So, well, I appreciate that. And now I can drop the hammers at home because there's so many great movies available on various streaming platforms. I do love going to theaters still, but uh, it is nice to have them, like you say, at your fingertips. Yeah, I, I look forward to the return to the theater, particularly for a couple of these movies that are up for nominations that I did watch in my living room. I make a point, though, when I'm watching a movie that I know is critically acclaimed, when you've said this is a great movie, I put my phone away. There's no multitasking. There's no hitting pause. You watch it as though you're having that theater experience. And certainly the first on our list today qualifies as one of those. I would go back and watch this movie numerous times. I want to get your take on it. We have not pre-discussed any of these, so I'm really looking for your, forward to your takes. Let's start with a little bit of audio from each as we dissect the nominees, most of the nominees for Best Picture at the Oscars. This up first is The Power of the Dog. Twenty-five years since our first run together. Nineteen hundred and nothing. It's a long time. What you doing? Getting mixed up with her. You are marvelous, Rose. We were married someday. Thor. Just listening to that again. What a movie. What a movie. So The Power of the Dog is uh, based on a great novel, actually, but it's set in the 20s in Montana, and it follows two brothers who are on a cattle drive, and they come across in this kind of a lonely town uh, with a tavern and a hotel and, and real kind of like ramshackle, this widow, and one of the brothers strikes up a romance with her, and it's interesting because uh, they're both portrayed by a real-life husband and wife couple. That, of course, is uh, Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons. Now, enter in uh, the, uh, the sort of jealous, mysterious, hard-edged brother, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, who's really going to cause a rift in their relationship. This is directed by Jane Campion, who you remember, remember years ago with The Piano, and she actually has become the first woman to earn two directing nominations in her career thanks to these two films. It also stars Cody Smith-McPhee as her young son, who a lot of people probably remember as that little boy in The Road with Viggo Mortensen, but this leads the way with 12 Oscar nominations. It's on Netflix, so there's really no excuse not to see it. And it's got some of the most gorgeous cinematography of any film of last year. You know, I'm getting goosebumps just hearing you talk about it. My significant other has watched this movie three times. That's how much Brian loves The Power of the Dog. Twice into it, he's like, Joe, seriously, you've got to sit down. I know you're busy, but you've got to watch this movie. And you're right. It it gave me feelings of Roma in that the the the, the slowness and the quietness and yet the intensity and, and how it pulls you in. I, I forgot that Benedict Cumberbatch was Benedict Cumberbatch, which is not yes, easy to do. <laughs> incredible uh, entrancing spell it puts over you and I'm glad that you mentioned you got to put the phones away because every single scene in this movie matters you really yeah. have to pay attention to the dialogue to the script 
Also, it's shot entirely in New Zealand, although it's set in Montana. So it's almost got this like heightened sense of fantasy to, to the geography and the backdrop that lends itself to this just kind of strange, eerie quality that permeates the entire movie. So definitely put that one on the list. One of the finest. But I would be happy if this one Best Picture next Sunday. I'm I'm in full agreement with you. The Power of the Dog is a must-see film. And while there is some graphic nature to it, it's not a lot. It's not like going to a Quentin Tarantino movie, you know what I'm saying? Um, but it's it's rough around the edges. One that I think is full family viewing is something, oh my gosh, I needed the happy cries in this one. The feels, all the feels that I had, I hope others might have. If you have yet to see this one, you must watch Coda. There are plenty of pretty voices with nothing to say. Do you have something to say? Sometimes I get a good feeling, yeah. Yeah. I get a feeling that I never, 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 never had before. You're the girl with the deaf family? Yeah. Yeah. I just want to tell you right now. And you sing. Interesting. Coda Thor. I mean, just another feel-good crowd pleaser. There's always a couple of these in the uh, Best Picture nomination bunch. It's a family comedy drama, like you say. It's free right now on Apple TV. It's a remake of a French film, and it follows a a young girl who's graduating from high school, and uh, she comes from a commercial Fisher people family in Massachusetts, but she's got this powerful voice, so she has aspirations of becoming a singer. The twist here is... She's the only hearing person in her family. She has two deaf parents and a deaf brother. So three deaf actors in the film, including the legendary Marley Matlin, who rose to fame in Children of a Lesser God with William Hurd back in 1986. And this got three Oscar nominations, uh, Best Picture, Adapted Screenplay, and for Best Supporting Actor for Troy Kotzer, who is deaf and who plays the girl's father. This is, like you say, happy tears. I'm still drawing my eyes from this one. It's a beautiful tearjerker and just uh, really examines the, the, it's funny. It looks at the whole gamut of humanity and, and, and motions and things like that. And it's fascinating to watch arguments happen with people signing because you don't hear anything, but you're watching the subtitles and watching the body language. And it's so engrossing. If you're trying to remember the name of the movie, Children of Deaf Adults is an easy way to remember it. Coda is the name of the movie. And it there are a couple of moments in it that I gasped at at how the representation of the deaf community is truly uh, alive and well in motion pictures it, it, with the representation of this film. Really profound movie, yeah. And that one, again, is free on Apple TV. Let's get one more in here before we take a quick pause. I have yet to see Belfast. We all have a story to tell. But what makes each one different is not how the story ends, but rather... The place where it begins. I've been searching for this one on my uh, streaming services. It's the only reason I haven't seen it yet. Tell me everything, Thor. Yeah, well, you can get um, Belfast on Apple TV. You can purchase it. It's a bit of a premium price. It will be available to rent at the end of the month, but it's directed by the legendary Kenneth Branagh, 
seven Oscar nominations, including Picture Director, Best Supporting Actor for the wonderful Kieran Hines. Judy Dench also has a nom. And uh, it's what Kenneth Branagh describes as his most personal film. It follows a young boy and his childhood following trials and tribulations in Belfast, Northern Ireland at the beginning of the Troubles in 1969. And I know with that line, you're thinking this is going to be a, a, a drama, a really gritty kind of tragedy. It's not. It's a joyous movie. It's beautiful black and white and really celebrates that exuberance of, of family and life. And this is another one the entire family can enjoy. Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett this week. And we're having some fun with my good friend Thor Dykow. He is a movie critic extraordinaire. We're talking about the nominees, the uh, the big movies you must see before you s- tune into the Oscars on March 27th. Uh, not every Best Picture nominee is part of our discussion here. We don't have enough time for all of it. But in the interest of time, I want to get to Dune as soon as possible here because you and I are Dune geeks, Thor. <laughs> so let's hit the audio on this, Tim, and then we'll talk it out. My planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. Rolling over the sands, you can see spice in the air. The outsiders ravage our lands in front of our eyes. What a beautiful film this is. Oh, man. And you know what? This one is one of those ones that demanded to be seen on the big screen, unfortunately. I mean, if it's still playing in your area, go see it. But it is available to uh, rent or buy at a premium on various home viewing retailers right now, including the Cineplex store. So it is available to watch. And it's directed by Canadian Denis Villeneuve. It's got the second most nominations with 10. Wow. It is so crazy to to do the comparison of the the old school sort of kitschy Dune that we many of my generation fell in love with. I got to say, I kind of miss not having Sting in this movie, but you just want Sting in the loincloth, don't you? I do. I really, I really kind of do. And the Baron, I found the Baron different in in this. I don't want to give too much away, but but it felt more influenced, I guess, by um, the Star Wars sort of. Delivery. I don't know if I'm I'm sure. reading yeah, too much no, into it, but I I could see that. Yeah. yeah, they're very different films. I think the beauty of movies and these kind of things uh, are that you can appreciate both of them for different reasons. I mean, you know, the other one was made sure. in a whole different era uh, by David Lynch, and uh, this one's very serious. It's much longer, and it's just it's part one of two, so there's going to be much more story to tell. I think this one is notable not only because it had ten nominations, but because it's a best picture nominee and it's a science fiction film. We don't get that every year, and it's nice to kind of have these bar raising sci fi films. I'm big time high-fiving you on that one. You know I love my sci-fi. And Dune was, it kept me intrigued the entire time, even though I'm very uh, familiar with the storyline. I, I I was giving it like little applause. I'm looking forward to part two for sure. Let's get to one of the movies that doesn't have any audio. It's Drive My Car. What is this nominee all about? I have not heard of this one. Well, this is on uh, HBO Max starting March 2nd, so I suspect it will be available for Canadian viewers on streaming platforms and home viewing uh, early next month. But it's a Japanese film. It's got four nominations. So this is interesting because it's got a Best International Feature, Adapted Screenplay, Director, and Best Picture nomination. So it's got... The best wow. picture nom, then it's also in the international category, and it follows an actor and theater director who's putting on this big production while grappling with the death of his wife, and there's a lot of little secrets and things that come to the surface, and it's based on an acclaimed uh, short story. So that's an interesting one on the list there. We don't often see international features getting nominated as well as the overall best picture category. Oh, that'll be one to watch. That again called Drive My Car. How about this? I'm a Lucy fan. You're a Lucy fan. I'm sure Lucille Ball is the Lucy I'm talking about. This is Being the Ricardos. 
So much to unpack in this movie. And Nicole Kidman, wow, as Lucille Ball. One of the best performances she's ever given. And you and I are both Aaron Sorkin fans. He wrote and directed yeah. this one, so it's full of those, those uh, acerbic Sorkinisms, if you will. Um, this is the acting one. It's got three noms. Javier Bardem uh, for actor for playing Desi Arnaz. Of course, Nicole Kidman. And then J.K. Simmons also has a supporting actor nomination. And it just examines the relationship, tumultuous at times, between the I Love Lucy stars Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, and, and really how she became this powerhouse behind the scenes in Hollywood at a time when a lot of women uh, weren't taken seriously. They, they didn't have the kind of um, opportunities in terms of production or, you know, it was a lot of big wigs, uh, and, and they tended to be a lot of old white guys running Hollywood at that time. And this was uh, sort of representing a new era. So it's a, it's a fresh take on that story and uh, again for the performances you got to check this one out on amazon prime video it is a must watch i very much enjoyed being the ricardos looking forward to seeing west side story i have yet to see this remake have a listen this is my first time in new york city i want to be happy here i want to make a life at home are you ready tonight is about family The first gringo boy who smiles at you. I seem to remember you watching this and tweeting about it. Yeah, this was one of my favorite films of last year. And you talk about representation. I mean, they do a very different version of West Side Story. There's not the dark makeup that we saw in the original, which did win Best Picture. But, I mean, that's a classic musical. Steven Spielberg sort of updates the story. They reimagine it. It's actually based not so much on the movie, but the original Sondheim Broadway play. It's got seven nominations, including picture director, uh, supporting actress for Ariana DeBose. She's playing the uh, original role uh, that uh, Rita Moreno won yeah. uh, a Best Supporting Oscar for. So that would be one to watch as well. And then it's just got, got, you know, cinematography, costume design. It's an impeccably crafted film and Spielberg's first musical, and he knocks it out of the park. This will be available on Disney Plus starting March 2nd. All right, be looking forward to that on Disney Plus for sure. Always look forward to my chats with you, Thor. Thank you for doing this. Anytime.